Romans 9, verse 1. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost, that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever, amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your most holy word. We pray that in this time of consideration of it, that you would pour out the spirit of Christ, that you might give us wisdom and insight into our blessed Savior, who took upon himself not the nature of angels, but that seed of Abraham. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We continue our consideration of the privileges of the Israelites, the apostle naming them after discussing his sorrow for them, his great heaviness and continual sorrow in his heart, wishing himself that were it possible he would be accursed, that they might, his brethren, his kinsmen according to the flesh, that they might come to the Lord Jesus. Then in verse 4 he mentions that they are Israelites, that to them pertained the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, and the service of God and the promises. Now verse 5, whose are the fathers? In other words, they owned them or possessed them in a specific way as their own fathers. Please open to Acts chapter 7, if you would, concerning these fathers. Who were they? And why is this a great privilege? Acts chapter 7, we'll read verse 2. Stephen, in his sermon, makes several references to the fathers. Acts chapter 7, verse 2. And he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our, what? Father, Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. Now look down at verses 8 through 11. And he gave him, that is Abraham, the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begat Isaac and circumcised him the eighth day. And Isaac begat Jacob and Jacob begat the 12 patriarchs. Now this word patriarch, I want to explain. Patros in Greek is a father. When he says the fathers, it's the patrois. When he says patriarchs, it's the word arche, which means the first or the ruling class, and then patros, the word for a father. So a patriarch is the first of the line, the head of a family or the ruler of a family. That's what a patriarch is. So when he says the 12 patriarchs, what he means is those distinct families in Israel, there was a head in each one of those families, 12 in number. That's what the word patriarchs mean. Verse 9. And the patriarchs, that is the 11, moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, 
but God was with him and delivered him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction and our fathers found no sustenance. Notice here, who are the fathers? You have Abraham as a father. You have the 12 tribes of Israel. That would be the sons of Jacob. They are patriarchs or head fathers, in other words. You have the 11 who are moved with envy against Joseph called the fathers, and they are called fathers as well. We also have the fathers who were in Egypt because of the famine in Canaan. So this would be Jacob. This would be all 12 of his sons and any of their descendants. These are the fathers. Look down at verse 15. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died. He and who else? Our fathers. Now look at verse 39 on the next page. Verse 39. Now he's referring to the Exodus generation as the context dictates. Moses bringing them up out. Verse 39, to whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them and in their hearts turned back again into Egypt. So who are the fathers now? Just Jacob? Just Abraham? No, it's the whole generation of the Exodus who died in the wilderness and wanted to return down into Egypt again. They are the fathers as well. Look at verse 45, please. Or verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles. Notice, again, who are the fathers? It is not just the Exodus generation, it is the conquest generation in the days of Joshua. Please turn over to chapter 15 of the book of Acts, verse 10. Acts 15, verse 10. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? The yoke of the ceremonies was unbearable, Peter says, not merely to us, but to who? Our fathers, all the generations that proceed back to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Please turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and this will be our final instance of this phrase, fathers. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. Now what's of interest here is that the Apostle Paul is not writing to Jews. He's writing to Gentiles in the city of Corinth. Were there some Jews among them? Yes. But most of the converts in Corinth, as we read in the book of Acts, were not from the synagogue. The Corinthian synagogue did not convert into a Christian church. Rather, because there was so much hostility, 
there was formed a separate church. But here notice, when he addresses a Jewish and Gentile congregation, what does he call them? Our fathers. And we'll see why this evening, why that is done. But in any case, the fathers were baptized unto Moses, verse 2, in the cloud and in the sea. And did all eat the same spiritual meat? And did all drink the same spiritual drink? For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Again here, the fathers, not merely Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, not merely the 12 patriarchs, but all of that generation, both that went into the land and that wandered in the wilderness. These were the fathers of God's people. These were the patriarchs, the 12 heads of the tribes. Abraham himself being called a patriarch as the head of heads, so to speak. I note then this doctrine. Having godly ancestors is a singular privilege. That's what Paul is laying out. What are the privileges and the blessings that the Israelites have rejected? Here they are. Here's one of them. Whose are the fathers? Having godly ancestors or even those marked out as God's people externally, that is a blessing. That is a privilege. That is something to be thankful for. The apostle magnifies this blessing and this privilege of his kinsmen according to the flesh. This is a benefit God bestowed upon them. He gave them these things along with the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God. This is another benefit they have received from the Lord. The patriarchs, the fathers are a blessing. Let us then rejoice as we saw, remember, with Nabal, who was a Calebite, we are to rejoice and to make the most of godly ancestors. The Israelites did not make the most of their fathers. They shamed their fathers, in fact. But if we have godly ancestors, give thanks to God, imitate their virtues. If you do not have godly ancestors, or even if you do, more to the point, be a godly ancestor if the Lord desires to grant you offspring. Be such that they can look back upon and say, that father was a blessing, that ancestor was a blessing to me, whether immediate or more remote. Now let's turn back to Romans 9, if you would please, verse 5. Whose are the fathers, and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God, blessed forever. Amen. Here, notice, there's a shift. He says, to whom pertaineth, and then he lists all the things in verse 4. And then he says, at the beginning of verse 5, whose... That's a possessive pronoun. They belong to them. The Israelites after the flesh, Paul's kinsmen, they had a proprietary interest in the fathers. Whose are the fathers? But notice the shift. And of whom? This is not the genitive of possession. This is that he came out from them. He was descended from them. They didn't own him as a benefit, so to speak, like they owned all those other things God graciously 
gave to them all those privileges. Here, the Spirit of God adds a preposition ex, hone. The rest is just hone, whose, whose, whose. This belongs to them. Now, out from among them springs whom? The Messiah. From the Israelites after the flesh. From their fathers from whom they descended, our Lord comes. Christ was not the possession of the Israelites. Much to their chagrin, they could not tell him what to do and command him like a slave. He did not belong to them, but he was from their stock and their lineage. John Murray comments, After Israelites, all the privileges mentioned are stated as belonging to the Jewish people. But when Paul reaches the climax... He does not say that Christ belonged to them, but that Christ came from the Jewish stock. Remember Matthew 1.1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now notice, it is not the whole person of Christ who is derived from the Jews. As every other Jew, they are derived in their whole person from the Jews, not so with Christ. As concerning the flesh, he says, Christ came. Meaning then that there is something more than a mere human nature in the Savior, in Christ. He's composed, you might say, of more than just the human nature. Now, this is the obvious import when it says flesh. It's referring not merely to a body, but to more than just that. Rather, this is a common figure of speech in the Bible. It refers to one part for the whole of a thing. And in this case, because the flesh is the lower part, it is mentioned. Why? Because Christ, who is the Logos, the eternal God, the Son of God, he was humiliated and came down and became subject to the Father, so it calls the flesh, as if that's all he was, because he was humiliated for our salvation. Christ had a true body and a reasonable soul as well. Now let's look at the book of Romans chapter 1 concerning this twofold nature of our Savior. Romans 1, we'll read verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared, notice the difference, made, declared. A declaration could be of a thing already as it is, but he was made into something he was not before. Made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Turn over to John chapter 1, page 1063. Our Lord was made of the seed of David as concerning the flesh, but declared to be the Son of God with power. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, 
And the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Look down at verse 14, please. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Notice here the twofold nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. First, he's the Logos, who was God, as well as being with God. He is the same that was there all the way at the beginning of beginnings. When God created the heavens of the, and the earth, he was there. And also he was the creator. All things were made by him. He is the universal creator. And without him was not anything made that was made. And he was made flesh. He is fully God, the Logos. And he is fully man. He took upon him flesh of the virgin. Please turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Concerning the Savior's flesh. Hebrews chapter 2, page 1207 of your pew Bibles. We'll read verses 14 through 17. Hebrews 2, 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Here notice, why was Christ made flesh? Well, there are two things mentioned, at least. One is, that he might die himself. And through dying, he might deliver those subject to bondage. That is, the people, the elect. He might deliver the elect by dying. That's why he took on flesh and blood. Also notice, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, to be a merciful and faithful high priest, to make reconciliation for their sins. I note then this doctrine. Our Lord Jesus Christ is fully man and became so for us men and for our salvation. Our Lord Jesus Christ is fully man and he became so or was made so for us men and for our salvation. He came of the seed of Abraham. Though he was the Logos, who is God, yet he became flesh. He took to himself a true body, but not merely that. He also took a reasonable soul, a soul that can think, remember, choose, and have affections, a reasonable soul. In fact, 
In the prophecies of Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 10, it says that he made his soul an offering for sin. So he didn't just have flesh and blood. He also had a reasonable soul. Matthew 26, 38, our Lord said, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Not just a body, not just blood, but a true, reasonable soul. Now, if he did not partake in flesh and blood, could he destroy him that had the power of death? No. He could not have. That's why he partook in flesh and blood. God required that the same nature that sinned must also be punished. There is a fitness. There is a justice to that. It behooved him. It was fitting and right in God's moral universe. No flesh and blood, no destroying of the power of the devil over men. No reasonable soul, no offering for sin. He couldn't offer his soul for sin, as Isaiah said, unless he had a true, reasonable soul. No seed of Abraham, no merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. And furthermore, no reconciliation with God for the sins of the people if he didn't come after the seed of Abraham. This is the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ and its necessity in God's purpose of salvation. If God was going to save sinners, reconcile them to himself, destroy the bondage of death and the devil, the Son of God had to become incarnate. He had to take flesh, blood, and a reasonable soul, or God would have to destroy all men because there would be no substitute to take their sins upon himself. And so I say to you in exhortation, accept no substitutes, pun intended. Receive no counterfeits. Acknowledge no doketic opinions. Well, Christ was like a telegraph. You know, you see a picture or you see some kind of a holograph and, you know, you see this person, it kind of looks human, but it's not really human. There was, there was a whole uh, series of errors surrounding this. Jesus isn't, isn't really flesh because that would demean his Godhead to come into union with a true body. He's got to be something different from that. He just seemed to be a true human with a real body. Like it just seems to be bread. It's not really. It's actually divinity and, uh, you know, it's just all this other stuff. There's just, just opinion that you hold of this. That's what dokeo means, to seem or to hold an opinion. Jesus seemed to be incarnate. No, he was incarnate. He was made of the seed of David. And if he was not, we have no salvation. There's no hope for us without God in the flesh, Emmanuel. He did not seem to die as the Muslims imagine. Well, he looked like he died and then he just rose and God took him up into heaven. That's what they say. No death upon the cross. No atonement for them. He did not merely seem to die. He did die. He did not merely seem to have a body. He did have a body. It didn't just seem to be a reasonable soul. He had a reasonable soul and has one now.
He did not merely seem to rise in his own proper flesh. He did rise in his own proper flesh. Believe then on the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul says. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. You must accept him as fully man if you would have him for your mediator. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. God willing, next week we'll review that this was no mere man. According to the flesh, he came and was made of the seed of David, but was declared to be the Son of God in power, chapter 1 told us of Romans. But then we'll see he is over all God, blessed forever. And thus far the consideration of Romans 9, 5.